Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arscast Extra as always with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm tired. And if it sounds a bit different today, it's because yesterday in my post-mug smasher funk, I decided to uh, spruce up my office, my studio at home, and I... I took down all the foam off the walls and repainted it and everything else. I haven't got any foam back up, so it's a bit echoey in here today. And my shoulders are sore from painting. So Ah, you didn't warm down after your painting? No, I didn't. I drank wine instead. And uh, I'm not sure that that's the... That's the optimum way of, of dealing with with painting and things like that. It did take my mind off Arsenal, though, for a good few hours. I Maybe was, they all drank yeah. wine before the game. That would explain a lot. They were like, it's the bank holiday weekend. <laughs> let's get let's, a bit of let's fucking back. Cabernet Sauvignon in here, a bit of Pinot sure. Grigio. All the Powerade bottles yeah. filled with Pinot Grigio. <laughs> uh, that's one explanation. It's credible. It is credible, actually, yeah. It does suddenly make sense. Mm. They were all just pissed. <laughs> really, really pissed. <sighs> but it was, uh, it, do you know what's striking what? in this game? In that... <sighs> Something weird's happening with Arsenal at the moment, I think, where it feels <laughs> like this kind of groundswell of optimism. You know, people will be like, I see progress. You know, I see pro. I can see where we're going here. Things are getting better. Yeah, and it almost makes the setbacks more painful. I guess it's like you're falling down to earth from a greater height. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think Saturday's game was really disappointing and disheartening because for me, it's not that it undid the progress or anything like that. But it was a reminder that our um, our lows when they arrive are really fucking low. You know, mm. we went through we went through a couple of months of performances and results like that where, you know, look, I, I think we can all acknowledge that Liverpool are a better team than Arsenal. Right, even if they have gone through a difficult period of late, they're a better team than us. They won the Champions League a couple of years ago. They were champions last season. Their consistency for the two seasons, uh, you know, where they finished second and then won the championship, was incredible. You know, they're a much more organized, solid, uh, you know, well-rounded. 
team. You know, they're almost complete. They've been missing some parts, but they're a complete team, which is, mm. you know, really good. So in isolation, losing to Liverpool as much as nobody wants to lose a game, you know, you can say, uh, and I'm not saying this, that this is something we should accept or anything like that, but I think we can all understand it, right? Yeah. But to lose to Liverpool in the manner in which we did, I think for me was was really disheartening and disappointing because we just did not get into the game at all. We didn't compete. We didn't, I think our Arteta used words like courage and we weren't brave enough and, and all of those things, which is absolutely true. There's no, I'm not disputing those things. But when you see a performance that um, lacking in pretty much everything, Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't you cannot help but worry and you can't help but worry because we weren't able to do anything about it during the game either when it was obvious uh that we had big problems we couldn't really do anything about it and i do think you know look we'll, we'll come to kieran tierney in a, in a little while i i think the tierney injury before halftime had an impact on what we might have done at halftime i'm not saying like you know um, without the injury, we would have gone on and made a halftime change and come out and been brilliant or anything like that. But, you know, the performance itself warranted something changing at halftime, right? But when you lose Kieran Tierney just before the break, you then have to think about, well, okay, if I need to change something a bit later in the game, and if somebody else picks up an injury, you know, am I going to use up two subs or whatever whatever mm-hmm. it is in, in 45 minutes? So I think that had an impact. But nevertheless... Being unable to to address the deficiencies of of our performance in game was was just painful. It was hard to watch and hard to take. And I think the T and E injury it compounds the feeling of this being a very bad day, doesn't it? I mean, the result was bad, the performance was worse, but I kind of almost feel like losing Tierney might be the thing that has mm. the sort of biggest consequences coming out of the game I mean without an obvious replacement and with the Europa League being of such importance yeah um, that's a huge huge blow yeah well yeah we might talk a bit later on about what we could do if if Tierney's injury is is long term I mean do we have any idea yet is there any no yet I don't think he knows yet right so probably find out today the quieter things are about things like that the the more worried i get you know mm-hmm. um so look well also yeah, go on. with tierney it's interesting like do you remember a few weeks about six weeks ago now i forget uh, he had uh an injury problem and we had exactly this to wait for a scan and the news came back it was really positive you know the prognosis was to be back in a few days and then he yeah. ended up missing a few games so mm. It's one of those where even when we get a bit of news, I think there'll be a bit of caution, understandably. Yeah, okay. Well, look, we'll come to that a bit later on. So um, we went to face Liverpool at home after an interlull without David Luiz, without Granit Xhaka, without Bakayo Saka, without Emile Smith-Rowe. And mm. Arteta said afterwards, you know, I'm not using those uh, absentees as an excuse. And I, you know, I get it. No manager is going to say, well, if we had those players, it would have been different. But I do think if we had those players, it might have been a little bit different. So this is not necessarily me uh, making any excuses, um, but but looking for perhaps a reason why 
Arteta's team selection played out the way it did, you know? I mean, what did you make yeah. of the the team selection, um, you know? With- well, I, I, personally, and I, I don't wish to sort of whitewash the rest of Arsenal's performance because, you know, definitely the 11 players out there on the field were capable of much better than they showed. But I think those absentees were a huge factor in this game. Um, I think they defined how Arsenal played. Mm. And I actually found Mikel Arteta's comments afterwards almost a little bit hypocritical to say, I don't want to use those players as an excuse because as far as I could see, the absence of those players played a big part in determining his tactical plans for the game. Mm. Um, You know, for example, he didn't build up through the back at all. He didn't play out from the back at all. And I think that's partly because he didn't trust the players in the absence of Louise and Shaka to to do that. Okay, so who in particular do you think he didn't trust? I mean, is that a holding Ceballos thing? Is it... I think it might be more a holding Gabriel thing, I I think. But, But so that was one part of it. I also think, you know, not having... Saka and particularly Smith Rowe, they've been so mm. integral to Arsenal going forward. I think that that influenced the attacking setup and the decision to put Aubameyang on the left. So yeah, I, I kind of I hear what Arteta's saying. He's saying the right things, and there's a kind of uh, admirable <laughs> bravado almost in saying, "Well, I don't want to, I don't want to use the absences as excuses." But the the absences were kind of the excuses for the way we set up and the way we played. So his actions suggest that those absences really did matter. Well, yeah, of course they mattered. But where where do we draw the line between? Okay, look, we don't have those players. It is going to change the way we play. It is going to change the dynamic of the team when you don't have those guys in it. But how does that explain the lack of, you know, without wanting to go too far into the realms of intangibles, but the lack of commitment, the lack of uh, competing in 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 midfield, uh, you know, for second mm-hmm. balls, Liverpool won everything. We were timid. I think the, I think the decision not to play out from the back, whether that was you know. Uh, Arteta's instructions or whether that was Leno to an extent I don't quite know I assume it was the manager's instructions um you know it seems a bit weird to play like that because you are immediately um like I'm not saying it's a huge strength of ours but I think we're good at it and we have improved at at this part of our game and I know Liverpool are uh, you know, a team that can press you very high. And if you are worried about someone like Ceballos, for example, you know, uh, maybe that's that's a way. But basically, you're just kicking the ball back to the opposition because you don't have the outlet. You know, we launched it towards Nicolas Pepe a couple of times and he won a couple of headers. But, you know, again, we never got on the second ball. So, you know, the players that we're, we're missing, uh, you know, have an impact on on the quality of the football that we might play, but they should not have such a massive impact on the the sort of commitment of the team throughout the 90 minutes. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think I think they do, those, those particular players, in my opinion, do have a big impact on uh, the way, the type of football the team plays Mm. I just think they're important and maybe in some cases more important than we 
realise or give mm. them credit at times. Um, you know, we all know and have all said how important Smith Rowe and Saka are. There's this kind of weird thing of it's uncomfortable, right? Because Arsenal have kind of revealed how reliant they are on two players who are extremely young, mm. um, one of whom is seemingly a little bit physically fragile, and then two players in Shaka and Louise who are kind of wildly inconsistent or certainly have flaws in their game, but Arsenal absolutely lean on them at times. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of an uncomfortable reality. I think that... Um, so I was quite lucky. I was sat really close to Mikel Arteta for this game. Right. And I um, was able to pay quite close attention to what he was asking for from his players. I really think that he went into this game without those players basically looking to repeat the trick that he played in the FA Cup last season. That kind of uh, counter-attacking game that worked against City and uh, Liverpool in the league and to an extent Chelsea. Well, yeah, However, yeah. The, um, the issue was, A, that's kind of a, a very high-risk strategy because you're kind of reliant on, you know, getting the breaks mm. in a game. And B, if you're going to play that way, I think the physical component is incredibly important. And I think Arsenal were second best in so many duels yeah. on the night that they were just completely dominated by Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, the, the win over Liverpool last season in the Premier League was was lucky. You know, there's no mm -hmm. two ways about it. We got really lucky because Liverpool made two mistakes, which we did well to capitalise on, but they were two, like, really uncharacteristic mistakes at the back. Um, I think one of them was from um, Tom Selleck in goal, and mm -hmm. the other guy, I can't remember, it was a back pass or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying about that, but you're right to say that the, you know, the, the only way that works is, is if everybody is 100% committed to what they're doing and doing their job to um, the greatest extent possible. You know, I do think as well, you, you kind of concede... Um, a little too much when you when you very obviously do what we did in you know kick the ball away let Liverpool have it let them come on to us see if we could break there were a couple of moments weren't there where I think Partey played a ball for Aubameyang there was one or two which nearly happened but didn't quite but you know we were we were lucky to be in nil nil at halftime you know yeah I mean that's the that's the point I think that the you can query the decision to adopt that tactic for sure mm. and I think even if you think that was the right call the execution of it was really poor yeah and I think that you know that clearly was the plan to play Partey's sort of crossfield passes to Aubameyang um, to try and get him in on that channel a bit like in the community shield that was the plan that was the thing Arsenal mm. were trying to do most frequently going forward um, and it didn't work and the other thing is that Arsenal's other approach really is, was to go through Martin Odegaard and I really like Martin Odegaard. I think he's a really talented player. Fabinho absolutely had the better of him in this game. He really, really did dominate him. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think that Liverpool midfield of um, Fabinho, um, Thiago against Thomas Partey, basically, because uh, Ceballos was a passenger, really. 
I mean, wh- why do you think he chose Ceballos for this game? Because if the rationale and if the 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 idea was to sit and to soak up pressure and to try and counter, is, you know, Mohamed Elneny not far more suited to that role in midfield alongside Thomas Partey in that he has the engine, he has the security on the ball, which Ceballos appears to have lost. I mean, he looked absolutely shattered when he came off, mm. didn't he? You know, he looked just like a shell of a man, shell of a player. I don't quite know what's happened to him, but it's, it's you know, it's not going well for, for Danny Ceballos this season. And every time he plays, it seems to be getting worse. So if, you're, if your game plan is built around being disciplined, having a bit more energy in midfield, I mean, why, why Ceballos? Was it, you know, perhaps to... Um, look at what you know the little bit of passing ability that he has that might replace what Shaka has I think probably in the absence of Louise and Shaka he thought maybe let's try and get mm. someone who's a little bit more forward thinking in terms of passing I, I also think what he wanted from Sabias in this game which was clear from the way he was talking to him was for him to follow Tiago. basically Tiago would drop quite deep to pick up the ball mm. and it was a source of real frustration to Arteta so much so that I was surprised Sabahis came out um, for the second half although the Tierney injury might have influenced that as you say that Sabahis that didn't get close to mm. and actually I think Sabahis when he was playing well and at times last season his ability to press um, aggressively was actually something that w- was quite good in his game. That appears to have, like the rest of his game, really fallen off. He he was um, really poor, and uh, this was, you know, it was probably not his most. He's had more egregious errors in recent weeks, yeah. particularly in the Europa League. But I think this was about as bad as I've seen him be since he arrived at Arsenal. Um, it was a, uh, it was the kind of display where you think, well, if if they were thinking about doing a permanent deal, I think mm. they would really potentially have second thoughts after that. It was kind of that bad. Yeah. It wasn't good at all. And like you, I, I was surprised he came out for the second half. But I do think the Tierney injury played a, a bit of a part in that. And I think, you know, Captain Hindsight and all that, but I think it was the wrong decision to play him from the start yeah. in a game like this. Um You know, I, I can sort of see why, but, you know, El Elneny as safe or whatever you might want to call him if he's a, a an average player I just think would have suited that um game a little bit better you know you can think about the game at Old Trafford when he played well really well alongside Thomas Partey mm-hmm. uh, and everything else so yeah um what about what about the the tactic of playing Aubameyang on the left mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I guess it was to exploit the space that, that Trent leaves behind when he goes forward. Mm. There was a similar idea, wasn't there, at, at West Ham where he started on the right. The and the flight. rationale for that, I guess, was look for him in the space that Cresswell leaves when he goes forward. Would it be fair to say that this is a stinker of a plan given that it didn't work against West Ham, it didn't work against Liverpool 
at all. Um, and I'm not putting this entirely down to Aubameyang. I thought he was poor on the day, as was Lacazette, as was Pepe, as were most of our players. But as a plan, it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense, particularly when I think you can look at, in the West Ham game, and uh, especially for Liverpool's first goal, the work that is required from a player in that position, from a defensive point of view, is not something that Aubameyang is good at because he was slow to a cross um, in the West Ham game, could have been for the third goal, and he just made a half-arsed attempt. Um, you know, I can say he's not good at the defensive side of his game, and, and clearly I think that's, you know, you could say, you could make the counter-argument that if he just made a tiny bit more effort, he could have prevented that cross or made it uh, much less effective of a cross. But, you know, that idea then that that Aubameyang is... This this guy to exploit space, but we can't make it happen. And the 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 downside of that is his defensive work isn't good enough, and we're also way too deep and way too static up front. When you could have deployed him against two relatively inexperienced centre halves. Yeah. So I, I and they think- played quite high as well. Sorry, they they played quite a high line, Liverpool. You know. So. Yeah, they did. They did. And, and in fairness, I mean, Aubameyang still looked to make that run, as we said. You know, that was that mm. was part of the plan. So I, I'm not saying I think this is the right thing to do, but, but I think the reason Arteta did play him from the left is I think that the template he was using for this performance, as I said, was kind of what Arsenal were doing towards the end of last season. He even mm. said after the game, I made a mistake in the way that I sent the team out to play. And I do wonder if that was a direct allusion to the decision to adopt that plan. Obviously, Aubameyang playing from the left was what we were doing at that time and was relatively effective. But there are a few things that were different. One is that we were playing at that point with a back three, which I think liberated him from quite as many defensive responsibilities as he had in this game. I mean, as I say, I was sat behind him and... The whole time in the first half, he was talking to Aubameyang from a defensive point of view, you know, telling him to watch. That right-hand side for Liverpool is their most dangerous. You know, they've got Alexander-Arnold, they've got Salah over there. And Aubameyang was basically asked to track Alexander-Arnold as much as he could. You know, when you're saying that, I'm listening to you and I can see what you're saying entirely. But just stepping back objectively... Do you not have to question a manager who asks his best goal scorer to do that? I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, by the way, I, I don't think that the setup was right in this game. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. See. No, I know, I know, I know. Um, and I think, obviously, in hindsight, it was wrong. I think the decision is much more about the fact that I don't really think he I would have been interested to see what happened if he had Smith Rowe and Saka available let's say that I don't think Arteta's first choice team has a Bermiang on the left and Lacazette up top um, I think he wanted to pick Lacazette in this game and that meant a Bermiang played from the left but I don't think that that's kind of you know his grand plan 
anymore. Why do you think he wanted to pick Lacazette as a reward for the game he had against West Ham or because he wanted him to play a specific role in this system? Because, you know, one of the things uh, I see thrown around a lot is, you know, Aubameyang can't play as the centre forward because he doesn't hold the ball up well. And Lacazette, he brings people into play and he can hold the ball up really well. And look, there have been some examples of that in recent weeks where his first-time passes and there have been some combination uh, combinations with other players that, that have been good. But like, if you're going to criticise Aubameyang for not being able to hold the ball up, what we saw from Lacazette on Saturday was just atrocious. And like Aubameyang as well was atrocious. Like simple, simple, simple things in the first half where, look, you're receiving the ball on the halfway line with your back to goal and you just need to knock it back to an Arsenal player. And simple little passes like that weren't coming off from Aubameyang, from from, uh, Lacazette as well. You know, so I'm just... Do you think it was more a reward for how well he played against West Ham? Because, like, he was... Look, it's hard to assess individual performances, isn't it, when everybody is bad and when the collective is bad. But, you know, Lacazette was terrible against Spurs. And we didn't really go into great detail on it because he he slotted away a very, very good penalty which won us the game. So mm. it's not as much of an issue. But if you're looking at performances and performance levels, stinker against Spurs, good penalty aside. Great performance against West Ham, you know, and then a stinker against Liverpool as well. So, But he's having more great performances than Aubameyang at the moment. That's, that's... I mean, isn't that the problem? That the sort of they're both not really yeah. Yeah. functioning at their best. And, and I do think that... Of course, like, of course you look at Aubameyang chasing Trent Alexander-Arnold back. And in this game, that was a really bad tactic. Like, he, in the first half, was effectively playing as a left wing back. Because um, Kieran Tierney was tucking in as almost an inside centre-half. Mm. When Salah went inside, Aubameyang was pinned back a lot of the game. And of course that was bad. I, I do think that the thing of, like, should a striker ever be tracking back? I'm like, in the really good teams, they're all tracking back. Like, it's not the case. Like, look at Man City. It's not the case that anyone's just free to do whatever they want. Everyone works for the team. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think... I'm not saying that... I think that's... I think that's okay. And when it was working last season, I don't think people Mm. had a huge issue with it. You know, I think that, you know, if it works, great. It's very easy after the game to be like, it didn't work. Therefore, the alternative would have worked. We don't know that. I think if we'd had Aubameyang up front on his own against Liverpool and the other 10 players had played like they did, he would have been as ineffective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think your point um, about how it was more effective last season when we were playing in a three is a really good one because we're not playing that way anymore. And... Yeah, but we sort of did. The thing is, we sort of did. Sort of. And, and that meant that Bemiang was kind of the left wing back. <laughs> because when he tracked Alexander Arnold back, we actually played almost a front three. Like Lacazette, if you look at the average position maps for this game, Lacazette played more to the left than he ever usually does. Mm. And he almost was filling that space with Odegaard to his right and then Pepe outside him. That was almost the three. And Aubameyang spent the majority of the game playing as our left wing back did in the three at the back system. Mm. That, yeah. Which, you know, I, again, I'm not saying that we should have played... Aubameyang is a left wing back but I think 
I, I just think that Arteta was trying to replicate something and he failed, basically. How big a miss do you think Kieran Tierney was in the second half? Like... Yeah, I, um, I think it's massive. Yeah. I think it's really massive. Like, as bad as Arsenal were in the first half, it sounds hard to believe this, but it was nil-nil. Like, somehow, mm. Arsenal were in the game. I mean, he, uh, he, he looked tired. He looked, I mean, and understandably, because he's a guy who played basically three full games on international duty with, with Scotland. And, you know, if he does have a serious injury and it could be in some way put down to fatigue, not fatigue itself, but tiredness, meaning you're not quite as, uh, as sharp in the tackle or anything like that, you know, we're, we're paying the price for not having any kind of left back, real left back cover, you know? And I think where Cedric um, can deputise to a reasonable standard, I think there's just too much missing from the team when we don't have Tierney and or a, a natural left-back. Like, I'm not saying Kolasinac would have been <laughs> brilliant or anything like that, but you know what I mean? I, I, I If you yeah. look at the goals... Um, the the first one down the right-hand side and Alexander-Arnold has way too much time to cross the ball. I mean, we'll come back to the left-back thing very quickly. How do you view the defending once that cross comes in? Is it an undefendable cross or should our, our defenders be doing better with that? Um, I think the goalkeeper should save it, probably. Um, maybe that's a bit harsh, but I, I, I think it's a very good cross. I think it's a very good cross. I, 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 I'm I a little bit concerned by how easily they run off the back of the defenders. It mm. reminded me a little bit of Raheem Sterling doing the same thing yeah. for Manchester City. Um, but I am mindful of what a good cross that is. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm just looking at it again here. Maybe I've been a bit harsh on Leno there. It, 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 you know, it is, it's a good cross and a good header. But. It's kind of point blank. Well, not point blank, yeah. but it's six yards and it's strong but yeah I, it's not a good look for a goalkeeper when he gets a relatively strong hand to something and doesn't keep it out like it wasn't just a fingertip it was you know it was a bit more I but mean, I, uh, yeah go on if you watch it again Rob Holding he has a look at Jota he mm. knows where he is and then he gets slightly attracted towards the ball Jota doesn't dramatically change his run yeah I'm just I'm gonna watch it again Holding slightly gets sucked in um and so, yeah, yeah it's maybe not he good. wouldn't be too happy with I mean, that. No. Callum Chambers is, is desperately trying to cover on the far side. Yeah, he's got a man behind him. Responsible. Yeah, I mean, Chambers can only react when he sees that ball coming to that area yeah. because he's got a man behind him to he's worry about. He's got outside him. So I do yeah. think it's it's not great for holding. It's not great. I mean, it's yeah, it's not great from Leno, but I wouldn't hold him 100% responsible for it. But, you know, it's just another little nagging doubt, isn't it, about Leno in the last few weeks? Um, yeah, I think he's in quite bad form. And I know he yeah. made some good saves in this game, but I think he's in yeah. maybe the maybe the trickiest time of his time with Arsenal, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I do have some sympathy with him because I don't think the defending has been good recently I mean that was another thing by the way that I found odd like we had the West Ham incident where Arsenal players turned their back on the ball there was an incident in the first half where I think Liverpool took a quick corner and we just weren't ready mm. and that really alarmed me I was like how are they not switched on to that stuff given yeah. how 
harshly they were punished yeah. against West Ham. Um, yeah, so yeah. so uh, uh, to come back to the Tierney thing, uh, I think that him going off was huge in this game. I mean, all of Liverpool's goals come down that flank, I think. Yeah, I mean, the... the- the second one, he's high up the pitch, isn't he, Cedric? You know, and this isn't to blame him, it's just to explain what's going on. He's caught high up the pitch, the ball yeah. around the corner. Um, Gabriel. Look, here's the thing about Gabriel. I thought he was probably our best player on the night. For an hour. I until was, he wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Until he wasn't. And, you know, he when you go to ground like that, you've got to get the ball. You have to get the ball. There's no excuses. Um, for him there and I think obviously he had a, a role to play in the, the third goal as well uh, giving the ball with away. that one where he's got to get the ball I've been interested because mm. obviously you've, you've played at the back I mean do you think he's a bit unlucky I mean he kind of does and, everything right but he just doesn't get the contact properly yeah it is a little bit but it's kind of like kicking um it's like an air shot, isn't it? It's like it, an air way. shot or an open goal. You know, you miss an open yeah. goal. You know, when you make the commitment to the challenge, you've got to come away with the ball. He is a little bit unlucky, but I also think that, you know, we have to look at it from the point of view that um, maybe he could have been a bit stronger if other defenders that we've had issues with in the past had made that kind of mistake. You know, there'd be much less forgiveness for them for for the error. And look, I think he's a he's a, a young player with some potential, Gabriel. Yeah. Um, he's still only 22, which is young for a central defender. So he's got time to learn and time to uh, to take the lessons from things like that. But that was, you know, he, yeah, it wasn't good. It's an error, yeah. It's an error. And, and it's interesting. I, I kind of thought the same against Spurs, that he was brilliant for about 60, 70 minutes. Um, mm. And then just a few creaks. Mm. here and there um yeah yeah i mean i i uh, yeah i keep saying it but i and i think cedric's done okay at left back at times for sure but um in the first half tierney was playing very close to gabriel because they were so conscious that salah wanted to exploit that space and that's partly why abemyang ended up chasing around like a left back cedric didn't do that no there were gaps there and liverpool exploited them okay let's throw out a hypothetical here yeah and we stress i'm going to stress that it is just a hypothetical if tierney is injured for you know a few weeks whatever it might be what's your solution to the issue at left back because for me i think we would have to strongly consider using bakayo saka at left back. And I know people are going to go, that's crazy. He's so important to us in the final third, what he's done from the right-hand side, etc., etc. But I do think in terms of the balance of the team and the way we want to play, or, you know, the, the evidence that we have that, you know, when we don't um, play like complete cowards like we did against Liverpool, when we actually want to play, mm. you know, having somebody at left back uh, who can contribute in the final third is a big part of it. And I think Saka can do that. And I know we might miss what he gives us on the right-hand side, but there have been a number of occasions of late where, um, a number, but I can think of a couple of games of late where he ended up on the left-hand side. Um, was it the Aston Villa game? 
That was one. That was one. Uh, and there there was, was another, maybe a Benfica. Yeah. And and he he is creative and he makes things happen on that left-hand side. And perhaps we lose a little bit of the goal threat that we, we might have with him on the right. But I think we whatever we miss there um, by him not being on the right, we miss far more by not having someone like Tierney at left back. So Cedric and Tierney are very, play that that uh, position very, very differently. And I think yeah. to give us something more akin to what Tierney gives us, Saka is basically the only option. Yeah, I think we've got to think about who's going to be on the left-hand side of midfield or, or attack. And I think after what we saw against Liverpool, it can't be it's Aubameyang. not going to be Aubameyang. It can't so, be. I think, you know, we're probably hoping it's going to be Smith-Rowe. Um, if it's not Smith-Rowe, I think it probably should be Willian. Uh, what about you know, Martinelli? Um, not for me. No, I, I would go I would go Smith-Rowe or Willian and have Saka as a left-back. I would, ha- I would keep the kind of... The technical... Um, the technical... I mean, Arsenal desperately missed that, I thought, against Liverpool. Someone who could actually keep the ball and do something with it in the final third. As I said, Odegaard wasn't really in the game. Um, Mm. And I think think that's what I would do. Um, I'm not sure if Arteta will do the same. I wonder if he might play Cedric at left-back and play... Uh, I don't know, Pepe or Aubameyang on the left, but I I hope it's Smith Rowe and mm. I and I hope it's Saka. Well, I, Although, I, I, sorry, fitness, I was going to yeah, sorry, go on, go on no. I, I was going to say I think we would. Um, I think what was I going to say actually? Sorry, I've interrupted you and and broken. No, your... it's all right. I think I was going to say that the left hand side also really missed Granite Shaka. And I think if he is there and Smith Rowe is there, then that is going to be where a lot of our build-up comes from. Mm. And I do think that getting Saka on the end of it... I mean, ultimately, Pepe is a closer analogue for Saka than uh, Cedric is for Tierney. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say now. No, it's all right. I I, I think... um, you're probably still reeling from my suggestion that I would potentially play Willian. <laughs> no, it's uh, well. I mean, uh, yeah, I remember what it was. It's it's entirely fitness dependent, isn't it? Because if Smith Rowe yeah. is fit, Smith Rowe plays. That's got yeah. to be the way it is. You know, there's no um, no reason to play anyone else if you have Smith Rowe. Mm-hmm. So let's keep fingers crossed on that. Yeah, and I think just jumping ahead, you know. The manager's got to pick one of the two strikers. Yeah, it's an either-or situation now, isn't it? Because you know what, 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 what that performance hammered home was the the recruitment strategy that this club had or lacked. You know, to buy two fifty million pound strikers within six months of each other, and there were yeah. moments where you know they did operate relatively well together you know i i mm-hmm. i think of that valencia game in the they in had the a little League. run as a front two in yeah. a kind of three five two didn't they where yeah. 
I think that suits both their strengths. But ultimately, that's not really a way of mm. playing that you see a lot of in the Premier League. No. You don't see a lot of front twos. It's, it's, it's an either-or now, I think. Yeah, I, so. I, I agree with that. And um, I actually think that we've played well with uh, both at times as the centre-forward. And I think we've got players who are capable of adapting to either. We've got mm. people who can play Aubameyang in or who can run beyond Lacazette. I just think we need to make a choice. As for left-back, I think you're... You're right um, about Saka. I do. I did have a thought during the game, actually, of would he go to a back three mm. to, to play Saka as a wing back? But I think if you have Granite Shaka, you don't really need to do that because from the central midfield, he can yeah, kind of can cover that in. zone anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'll be really intrigued by that. But personally, I'm coming around to the idea of Saka, for sure. Um, so, look, very finally then, how do you... How do I've you... got more to say about the game, actually. Is that do right? You? Yeah, of course. Yeah. What I, else? You know how you said Arsenal didn't change it and they didn't find a way to mm. cope or improve? And by the way, something that I've not said explicitly is if you're going to set up a team to counter-attack, one of the vital components is that is that at some point you must attack <laughs> and <Yeah>. Arsenal <laughs> produced nothing really of yeah. any attacking threat in this game um, so yeah. that was a massive massive that failure. wasn't that wasn't counter attacking it was no. it was what damage limitation it, or whatever it, it was the risks of counter attacking the sitting off without with any none of the, of the benefits. benefits yeah but one of the things I found alarming is that as I waited for more changes to be made after Cedric um, I found that the substitutes the Arsenal substitutes were kind of warming up in rotation for the most part so you know when it's like the first half and they send three out yeah. they jog around a bit then they send another three out yeah that's kind of what was happening on the touchline right. you know like Martinelli went out for a bit at the start of the second half, but then he sat down and Pablo Marie went out for a jog. And I, and it just felt like there wasn't an urgency or an imminence about plans or players coming on. I, I honestly was looking at it and thinking, and I was seeing people on my timeline calling for changes. And from where I was sat, I was thinking, they're going to stick with this. Yeah. And they did stick with it for quite a long time. Yeah, because I, I at 1-0... I remember saying on the live blog something like, okay, well, look, we've kind of fucked ourselves here, but let's at least go down swinging, mm. you know, have a go, try and change something and get Martinelli on. It was whatever, mm. um, when did Liverpool score? The 64th minute. Yeah, 64th minute for the Liverpool goal, right? Yeah. And they're 2 nil up then in the 67th quick, minute, right? And it's 77 minutes before... Martinelli comes on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, is, I think that's bad. That the the performance that we had seen up to that point was poor. Mm. It played no small part in us being 2-0 down. And we still waited another 10 minutes to get Martinelli on the pitch. Now, it didn't really change a great deal. You know, he didn't have much of an impact when he came on, but it's about sometimes the intent or the message 
that it sends. Like, if mm-hmm. he'd taken both Aubameyang and Lacazette off and just put Martinelli on and played with 10 men, I don't know that we could have been much worse because it, it was a coin toss between which of them was going to come off. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe the reason why <clears throat> Aubameyang was the guy who came off wasn't because he was the worst, but because he sort of acknowledged, okay, well, this game is gone. We do have a big game on Thursday and maybe the 13 minutes of rest that he gets, you know, might be useful because I'm going to play him, you know, but it was really a coin toss as to which one of them would have come off. But, you know, I think it, 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 in some ways by delaying the substitution, it sort of signals, not an acceptance, but it doesn't demonstrate any real willingness to try and get yourself back into it as improbable as it sounds and improbable as it would be and as difficult as it would be given how poorly we were playing you know one goal at 2-0 changes something changes maybe the dynamic and the momentum and, and what have you but you know we just didn't really I mean if the players didn't compete you could level that accusation at the manager as well I think that's fair and it reminded me of recent games against Manchester City where it's almost felt as if we were content. I mean, we did get absolutely battered in this one, but mm. sort of content to not get battered. And yeah, I, I, I mean, judging, I suppose, from the post-match opprobrium of Arteta and how, you know, you know, he gave us all his angry face, presumably he wasn't content, but it felt like it. Yeah. And it felt like they were the decisions that were made. And... um as I said at the top, actions do speak louder than words. And it was a very dispiriting uh, evening, you know. Yeah. I mean... How do, you, how, do they, how do they react now? I mean, is, you know, all the talking is fine. And apologising to the fans, fine. And saying you're angry, fine. And saying it's unacceptable, fine. You know, we could all do that. We could all stand up and give the right press conference answers and, and everything else. But how they react on Thursday is going to be the the real measure of, of the work that they do or how they react to, to, to this disappointment. Yeah. I mean, it really, a lot to... <laughs> A lot depends on who they get back. Mm-hmm. I, I really think we can't underestimate how much difference that might make. Um, I suppose something I'll say is that uh, as much as we look at the technical attributes of the players missing, I think the psychological and mental attributes are to be considered as well. If you think of someone, even a younger guy like Mikai mm. Saka, you know, his determination and ability to impress under pressure is enormous and I wonder if you could say the same of everyone who was out there on the day Mm. in an Arsenal shirt and I just wonder as well you know that kind of big game temperament of someone like a David Luiz how absent was that Mm. in in the rest of the players I really I mean obviously Luiz is going to be out he's had surgery now on his knee um I really hope we can get some of those players back I really hope we see an Arsenal team that looks very different and and I think um, I don't mean that in terms of personnel as much as I do in terms of attitude application Um, they looked sort of like they surrendered in this game and they looked like they looked like their league season 
is of no consequence to them at this point. So they had better bloody well show up in the Europa League or that's going to look very foolish. Yeah, sure is. I mean, look, I don't think it was that. I don't think they they decided that, you know, the league doesn't matter because, you know, if we'd won against Liverpool, we would have been a point behind them, as ludicrous as that yeah. sounds. Well, you know, uh, and people will remember me, speaking of ludicrous, a week ago, saying I quite fancied us to win this game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do think there was a bit of opportunity there. Arsenal... We know we'd had an international break, but we were coming off the comeback against West Ham. Yeah. You know, Liverpool, yeah. although they've improved of late, they've shown vulnerability this season. Well, we didn't we didn't set up in a way to exploit their vulnerabilities. What we did no, was we, we did set it. up in a way which allowed them to use their strengths. You know, in Alexander Arnold, who's a, just an amazing player. Um, you so know, I should tell Gareth Southgate. <laughs> what the fuck is that like? What I is... know. I mean, I know a lot of our listeners won't be English. No, nobody and won't yeah, care. Care, but like, but it's still. N- it is absolutely crazy. bizarre to kind of alienate. I think maybe, maybe one of the team's two, best two or three players for sure. Um, for sure. And yeah, I, I. So I completely agree with you. For all my explanation of what I think Arteta was trying to do, I think he got this absolutely uh, mm, wrong. wrong. And you know you can't you can't say it any other way. Um, so yeah, it was a really bad night for him, and it was a bad night for Arsenal. And let's hope somehow they can mm. uh, consign it to the past. I mean, if there's anything we've been this season, it's inconsistent. So let's hope the inconsistency works in our favour this time, and we're better in the next game. Yeah, we need to be because it's. It is now, you know, if there was an outside chance of finishing in the European places in the Premier League, I think that's, you know, it's even more outside um, at this point. Uh, it's very, very slim chance. So the eggs... We've lost a lot of games. We've lost... Well, 12 a games. Lot, a lot of Which games. is crazy when you yeah. when you think about it. It is absolutely crazy um, for a club like Arsenal. Uh, and, you know, I know there are not mitigating circumstances there are there is context to an extent but for Arsenal to lose 12 games you know I think in any other in any other scenario if this were a normal season and a normal world we were living in fans in the ground fans in the ground and and like expectations where they should be for a club like Arsenal you know we'd be talking in a in a different way about the manager which isn't to say I'm convinced in Mikel Arteta but I think there are reasons why he is going to continue and will continue you know next season regardless of what happens in the remainder of this season but come you know the midpoint of next season if there is not any kind of marked improvement in our league form or or the or the if we haven't addressed the inconsistency in our performances and results it's you know it's time to think, or it will be time to think about, you know, doing something different. Even if you do accept this is a rebuild and there are things that we need to put in place and all of that. But look, I've got a question. I think I've got a question or two about that for, for okay. part two. So let's, let's do that. Take a little two. break. Uh, that's coming up for you right after this. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two, where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. Do you want to go first, James, or will I? Or how do you feel about this? Mm, I've got a question from okay. Tim Stillman, actually. Ah, yeah. I was going to ask that one as well. So, so yeah, Tim says, does the decision to award Abemiang a big contract but then not to build the team around him and play to his strengths, worry you when it comes to this summer. Personally, I have a hard time trusting Arteta and Edu with a rebuild when there's still such muddled thinking. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, yes. next question. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's something I think a lot of people said, that when you commit that kind of money to a player of his age, which isn't to say you know, he was knackered and over the hill or anything like that. But I do think we have perhaps this season seen just a few signs of physical decline to us, you know, not a huge extent, but some with Aubameyang that the idea of committing that amount of money to uh, a top class goal scorer, right? And then not using him in his best position, which is as a centre-forward, for me, has always been as a centre-forward, doesn't make a great deal of sense. Like, it's not the most... Like, if you're committing to him and you're having discussions with him about, you know, we want you to be here for the next two or three seasons, but we're going to play you as a left wing-back against one of the best attacking right-backs in the world. Yeah. That's not good thinking. For me, it's not. Uh, and I know there were reasons why in the first half of the season it was maybe a little more difficult because we we lacked the Smith Rowe. We lacked the Odegaard player. Well, I mean, we had, we had one. We wouldn't pick him, yeah. 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 I mean, we had the player and we didn't pick him um, for whatever reason that will come out in the wash one day, I'm sure. But at the moment, even if he is going through a, a difficult period in front of goal uh, it doesn't make sense to me to play him as a as a left winger um, we already talked about Lacazette and Aubameyang you know being an either or situation I think that's you know that's pretty obvious at this point and for me it would be Aubameyang first um, so yeah it does worry me a little bit because you know some of the things that Arteta has said about the way he wants to play and the specificity mm. of 
players in key positions, and that's a word that he used, is encapsulated by someone like Aubameyang because there is absolutely a specificity about where he should play and what he can do. Uh, so I, I see exactly what you're saying. But at the point Aubameyang signed the new contract, he had, I think I'm right in saying, he had never played as a centre forward for Arteta. I think there were a couple of games, weren't there? There were a couple of games. Maybe. Uh, maybe a couple. But I I don't remember them, if they were. And they may have happened. And I remember, this is interesting, because I remember at the time that the contract was signed, mm-hmm. I remember being told... Um, very clearly that the position Aubameyang would play was not a part of those discussions. It was not a factor in the decision to sign the new contract or not. From the player's side or from the club's side or what? I mean, that's strange, isn't it? Isn't that strange? Uh, it's a good question. Like, like if you were I found Aubameyang, it strange at the time. I found it slightly surprising at the time, mm-hmm. but I ultimately I think we have to remember at the point Aubameyang signed that contract, for whatever reason, be it just excuse me, excuse <laughs> me, sorry, my puppy's trying to get into the room. Um, at the time he signed the contract, Aubameyang was kind of flying. You know, he was mm. playing the best football of his Arsenal career. He was finishing way above expectations, taking chances he had no right to take. And I think, I actually don't think it's Aubameyang's responsibility to have that conversation with the manager about what is his best. Excuse me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I don't think it's Aubameyang's responsibility to have the conversation with the manager about what is the position he's going to play. Like, ultimately, I think it's a good thing from a player that he was like, I'm going to sign this contract because I think you're a great coach and I think you know how to use me and you'll make it work. I think the responsibility has to be on the manager to have the plan. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And look, yeah, you, regardless of your stature and, and everything else, you know, you play where the manager wants you to play. Yeah, and I and I like that about Bermia. Mm. Like, I, I like that he's like, you know, well, listen, I might not, think this is my favourite position but I'm playing out here we've just won the cup I've scored I've scored the two goals in the semi from here I'm scoring a lot of goals from this position I'm okay with that you do what you want boss Mm. I think it comes down to the manager and my suspicion at this point I'll admit when when he signed the contract I thought right well looking at Lacazette's contractual situation I think the plan's got to be that he's going to use a Bemiang centrally I think that's what Arteta is moving towards and will want to Mm. do sitting where we are now in April the following year I can't say with any conviction that is what Arteta wanted because ah, he's just not stuck with it enough to convince me that that Mm. is actually his plan I do wonder if he thought I'm going to play this guy on the left and it's going to work brilliantly and if he did think that, he was wrong. Well, I mean, it worked, like we said earlier, in the three at the back situation. Yeah, it did, but work. It it did work, but you can you can still debate mm. the degree to which it worked. I think the reason it worked is that Aubameyang was finishing, he was on fire in front of goal. Way I mean, above his taking, XG, wasn't he? 
Sure, like he was taking every chance that came to him. And part of that is about the fact that he was on the left, I think, in that, you know, he's just, I don't know, there was something about the, it helps his stride maybe when he's coming on to chances. But he, he he's not doing that anymore. He's reverted to the player he was before last season. Mm. And um, yeah, it's not panning out at all. And And, and you know, the whole on the left thing. There are there are a million ways you can play that role on the left, but if that role on the left is like you say, chasing a right back back into your own half, that's not right. Yeah, look, I I don't um I, I think Aubameyang in that kind of inside left channel driving towards goal is really effective when you can get him into those positions. Yeah. So I don't I can see some kind of logic in using or trying to get him into those spaces but you can easily do that if he's playing up front as well. So but, but what I'm saying is sorry just to, just to sort of finish what I was saying in answer to Tim's question I couldn't tell you what the plan was for Aubameyang when he signed that new deal. Not only because as far as I'm aware it wasn't a big part of the discussions but also because we can't see it. We can't see it. Mm. And the closest we've got to seeing it, I think, has been those games where he has played up top with the creators behind, which I still think has looked pretty effective and worked pretty well. But Arteta's kind of... The speed at which he goes back to Lacazette just makes me think, well, that's not the plan then, is it? Mm. Um, And the, the other addition to this, by the way, is that I do think Aubameyang has to have some responsibility for his own performances as well. And I think I think he's 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 not had a good season. Some of that is due to his use, some of it is due to uh positional play or whatever it might be, lack of opportunities, but he he's not performing at the level he was mm. last season. And I think he did exceed expectations last season and mm. He's just sort of dropped off a bit. Um, And maybe we should have anticipated that. We absolutely should have anticipated it. Well, just uh, very quickly on the the broader aspect of Tim's question, you know, does it, um, how did he put it? Does it um, it, worry you about, about what their plans might be come the summer? If we, you know, if, and not everybody will, but if we accept we're in this rebuilding process, what we do this summer is going to be absolutely key to taking a step forward or not, which, you know, as I said towards the end of the first half, I think is going to be the the thing which decides Arteta's job one way or the other. If we're better next season and we're more consistent and we're winning more games and we're, you know, comfortably um, in the, I guess, I don't want to say top six because it feels like, again, we're, we're lowering our standards. But I do think we, we, we cannot be in a situation next season where we're just about, if we do everything perfectly, scraping into the Europa League. That can't be the standard, right? So it's got to be better next season. It's got to be at least comfortably um, qualifying for the uh, Europa League and then, you know, looking to be in the top four. I mean, I think that's what we've got to set the standards at. And I don't know that Arteta would would argue with that, to be honest. Um but yeah, that's got to be the minimum. Yeah. I, and and to be honest, I also think it's probably the maximum, realistically. Yeah, um, it, it probably is in terms of taking a step forward in one season. I think it probably yeah. is. But but then you know, if this 
if we accept that there is some muddled thinking about what we're doing with Aubameyang, do you worry that what they're planning for the for the summer might be equally muddled, or do you think there might be more clarity to that? Given that, like the Aubameyang situation, it's, I'm not saying it's complicated, but it is like like as you said, you've laid out reasons as to why he might be used from the left, even if I don't necessarily uh, agree with with Arteta's thinking on that. You know, and it does give you a chance to get another goal scorer in the team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, there has to be more clarity about what we're going to do this summer. I think so. I feel that there are a couple of big decisions that look bad, aren't there? And one is the Aubameyang deal. And the other one is the Willian deal. Because with both of those players... It's very hard at this point, about nine months on or whatever it is from those contracts being signed, to say what we intended to do with them. It's really hard. Mm. And that means something's gone wrong. I would just offer a bit of balance, maybe, and say there are other areas of the squad where, you know, I think things have made a little bit more sense. You know, I, mm. maybe the centre-half situation, you know, the fact that we went and got two left-sided centre-halves and kind of did that, you know, that was sort of reassuring. Arteta had a requirement. We filled that requirement. Um, that, you know, maybe that's it. But like, you know, I, I, there have been signings we've made recently that I've thought, okay, that's sensible. You know, yeah, Thomas you can Partey see, was yeah. a, a good signing, getting in Matt Ryan, albeit a few months late fair enough there have been a few sensible moves that make me think maybe there's a bit of pragmatism there that's sometimes been absent but on the the biggest decisions Mm. the most expensive decisions yeah of course I'm of course I'm worried about that okay of course I am all right we Um, have yeah go on sorry I just have another question um from Jim who's at Benji Loftus 88 and he says What's your view on the Aubameyang captaincy? Seen it too often mm. when our heads go down. He doesn't lift us or lead by example. The issue is how you take away the captaincy without it creating a bigger issue. For me, Tierney, Shaka, or Louise should be captain. I don't think it matters who's captain, personally. I really don't. I think what is most telling to me is that list of three players that he gives weren't on the pitch for the second half of this game, the majority mm. of this game, I think we really did, you know, it's often said Arsenal lack leaders, but those guys are among the leaders. And I think Aubameyang uh, is not a leader in the conventional sense. Um, he has he has done it. He's pulled Arsenal out of holes with his finishing ability. But I think... I mean, he I'm led. Sure that's... He led in the FA Cup final and semi-final. Exactly. You know, so yeah, absolutely. I, I don't wish to dispute that, but I think um, I'm not sure he can be relied upon to absolutely do that when the going is against him slightly. Yeah, uh, um, and but I don't think that matters enormously. Does it matter to you? I think the captain matters if you have a, a really obvious captain, like if you've got somebody who is. Um, capable of playing that role. And I, I think I've said this before, that everyone looks for a Tony Adams, 
Mm. Well, they look for a Roy Keane or or that kind of inspirational leader on the pitch. You know, the 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 guy who'll rally the troops and get everything going again. Those guys don't really exist anymore. Yeah. You know, and they're they were few and far between. Anyway, you know, they're few yeah. and far between, and that's why they stand out. Those characters, and I think sometimes. When things go wrong, we look for all kinds of reasons as to why. And the symbolic nature of the captaincy and the captain's armband and all that kind of stuff comes into play. And people say, well, it's no wonder we played poorly against Liverpool when we don't have a captain. This supposed symbol of the club. Yeah, and it's not. The reason we played poorly against Liverpool, I think we've outlined in the first part of this show. And it's got nothing to do with who the captain is or who's wearing the captain's armband. So well, I mean, I do, I do get it. And let me just make another quick point here and we can move on because I, I'm not sure it's worth a huge amount of discussion on this. I just see a lot of comments about it and, and what have you. Yang's hair has got nothing to do with this performance. I just want Are to Are we sure, that. Andrew? I can am we be absolutely sure. <laughs> you know, I yeah. be, be upset with the performance, but don't put it down to his hair. No, no. I mean, reserve that for David Luiz. I, <laughs> no, I completely agree with you. It's it's a it's a complete um, red herring. Yeah. But I, I I also think the armband is a red herring. I've sort of said before, you know, Aubameyang wears the armband, but Shaka's still the captain as far as the players are concerned, and I think that remains the case. And I'm not, and he's not Tony Adams. He's not Patrick Vieira. Let's be clear about that. But there but are even- leadership in. Yeah, even Patrick Vieira was different from Tony Adams. Exactly. You know? That's true. That's true. That's true. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure Kieran Tierney will be captain of Arsenal Football Club at some point if he stays. Um, Fit. (laughs) If he stays fit. But I, just on Aubameyang, I think it is fascinating. You know, you mentioned the haircut thing. I've seen a lot of uh, anger and frustration and disappointment aimed at Aubameyang. I don't know if you've witnessed this as well, Mm -hmm. but I am sensing a lot of that among the fan base. And I just wonder why that is. Why has the tide turned on him quite as dramatically and quite as quickly as it has? Because I think think he's a... a character who, when the going is good, people people enjoy. But I think, you know, when when the when the chips are down a little bit, I think he he's a very obvious. Uh, you can see in his body language that he feels that the chips are down, and then mm. people conflate things like his haircut or like the cars he drives and his things wages. like that. Uh, yeah, wages. I mean, I understand that a bit more than the, the, the cars and, and everything else. And look, there have been, you know, there was that incident, wasn't there, where, you know, perhaps through some fault of his own, um, you know, he was he was late for the derby. Mm. And people will say, well, look, if you can't even arrive on time for the derby, are you really committed and, and everything else? And as I think you guys in The Athletic reported, it wasn't the first time that there were timekeeping issues with him. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can understand why why um, people might have some concerns based on behavior. But I just think 
in some ways he is an easy target because of the the clothes and the hair and the the kind of the 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 outgoing nature of his personality when he's happy is quite infectious but the reverse could be true when things aren't going well yeah i also think there's something about his style of play the type of player he is um i think everybody universally adored him last season because he was kind of doing everything right. But actually, for the most part of his career, he is a guy who, you know, <laughs> doesn't make massive contributions to build up to the overall team play, who misses as many chances as he takes. So there are as many that while he gives you so many goals and it's great, there are also moments which frustrate or irritate fans. And I think now mm. that he's his finishing has slightly dropped off, um, those aspects are kind of being highlighted more than others. Um, but it is an interesting one because he really was adored around the time of the mm. FA Cup final and even at the start of the season. And it's it's really seems to be swinging the other way. Mm. Um, maybe that's just, you know, it's difficult to take temperature on social media, isn't it? But that's... It is it a feels. bit because, yeah, it is, you know, particularly at the moment, it, it can be... Yeah, it can be a bit uh, intense, um, let's say. Um, let's have a list next okay. question. Another cheerful one. Um, Stu, who's at Stooth912, says, Morning, guys. How damaging are performances like Saturday's to our chances of Odegaard wanting to stick around after this season? Do you think he's seen enough at the club to match his own personal ambitions? Um, look, when you get played off the park by a team like that and you don't compete, it's very difficult to find any kind of upside. And immediately you think of all the possible negatives, right? Um, and Odegaard, you know, I saw a lot of people going, oh, look, he's talking to Jurgen Klopp. He's talking to Jurgen Klopp at the end of the game. Fuck. It's like Klopp has gone, you know, come to Liverpool. It's all sort of, come on. You like yeah. it. You like it better here. In like the four seconds that they were talking, you know, manager, opposition manager, and player at the end a, of the game, a, a pre-contract. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I look. I understand it, but you know, you can jump to conclusions. I think, um, something Arteta said in his uh, press conference before the Liverpool game. He was talking about Lacazette. And about what we might do with him and, you know, with a year left on his contract, you know, would we offer him a new one or what have you? And he said something paraphrasing, but along the lines of everything depends on where we finish and what we have to do for next season. You know, whether whether that includes European football or not. And he said, I'll be clear, there are no exceptions to this. There are no exceptions. So the futures of some players may well depend on whether we have European football. At this point, it's crazy to say that it looks, you know, our best chance of European football next season is the Champions League by winning the Europa League because I don't think we're going to we're gonna finish in the top six. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of you Champions know? League or bust at yeah. this point. Which, of course, would be amazing. That'd be an amazing thing to be in the Champions League. That's a kind I mean, of... we'd get absolutely destroyed in the group stages, but financially... <laughs> financially, it would be great, but it would be also much easier to um, persuade someone like Martin Odegaard to stay 
It's like, look, you played a big part in getting us to the Champions League, and now you can play Champions League football for us next season, and we've got the money to, you know, pay your fee or pay your wages or whatever it might be. So I don't think in isolation the Liverpool game has a huge impact on Odegaard's future. I think really what we do between now and the end of the season will have a big impact on, on you know, our ability to keep him. And if we don't have European football it's going to be a very, very difficult job to convince a player of that quality who could go back to Real Madrid and stay there and play, you know, Champions League football for them, probably, or go to another club who've got the resources to buy him and offer him Champions League football. Mm. That's going to be very difficult. So the answer for me is like, it all really depends on on what happens. I've always been very cagey about our prospects of keeping Martin Odegaard and I still am. I mean, I did kind of have a moment after the game where I was sort of thinking about it and I saw this question. I was thinking, you know, we, we kind of go, well, you know, Real Madrid, they're not what they were. They're not what they were. And I was like, they are second in La Liga. We are 10th. Like, I know we love Arsenal, but mm. we are 10th. Yeah. I, I, and there's a report in the French press about PSG potentially looking at Odegaard. There are reports in the Spanish press about if Haaland goes to Madrid, he mm. wants Odegaard there with him. I mean, we aren't competing with them, you know? So no. It, it, I, I, it's an uphill struggle, for sure, at the moment. I don't think the performance really matters. It's more just mm. where we sit. And the uncomfortable reality of we are most likely going to finish firmly ensconced in the mm. table this season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and look, Real Madrid are, are second, only three points behind they, Atletico. They Madrid. might well win the league. They might. It's getting quite They're having tight this disaster there, yeah. season, but Atletico are wobbling a bit. They'll, they'll, they could win the league. Even um, Barcelona are beginning to play again, so... Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a difference. It's like, where's the respective floors of each team? Mm. And ours is a lot lower. I I, I love this question from, uh, I think it's from Lewis Ambrose, actually, LG Ambrose on the Discord. How much should fans temper expectations for the summer? It seems like people are not only hoping for, but expecting maybe four new starters and extra squad players on top of that. What is actually realistic, especially without Europe? And will it be on Arteta to get more out of the players he has than relying on a few signings to improve us? If it is a season without Europe, yeah, I expect not a great deal in the transfer market beyond what we can finance by selling players. And I think mm-hmm. if it is a season without Europe, you you absolutely if you feel the squad needs to be improved you've got to make the the obvious decisions on certain players so that means sell Lacazette with a year left on his contract it means get what you can get for Genduzzi. Uh get what you can get for for Lucas Torreira um, who's obviously going through a very difficult time and um, yeah. condolences to, to him uh, you know I saw people reacting very angler, angrily um, to, you know, his comments about how he wanted to go back and, and play in South America and be closer to his family. And I would just say that, like, in the throes of devastation, his mother was only 53 when she died of COVID. You know, don't lash out at a player who's having a really difficult time and just wants to be with his family at, at, a, at a, 
you know, a hard moment. He's speaking from a very emotional place as well. Of course. And, and, you know, people have said, well, look, he signed a contract. He knew what he was doing. He's a big boy. Of course he did. And he knows that too. And and that's a situation. If he has to, he'll do what he has to do. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I don't, I just don't understand why people were giving him grief, even if your uh, outlook on it is cynical or you, you want the, the money for Arsenal to reinvest. Of course, of course, Arsenal shouldn't, you know, do him any favours. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog football world out there. They, everyone goes into these things with their eyes open, but, you know, just a little bit of fucking humanity in the, in the immediate aftermath of something like that. Mm. Um, you know, so those, those decisions, like Ainsley Maitland-Niles, sell him. Yeah. Joe Willock, yeah. maybe you sell him. If Newcastle Eddie and Kenny, yeah, yeah, you know, these are the decisions that are going to have to be made. So what we can do in the transfer market um, will be dependent on on what we can generate. And that's going to be difficult because a lot of clubs are going to struggle, even if fans are going to be coming back next season. But the expectation that we could probably sell a few and bring in a few, I don't think is unrealistic, right? I think that's possible. Where we then need to see the improvement is if in a season without Europe and Arteta has got Monday to Friday on the training ground to work with these players without the distraction of Thursday nights in Europe, there's got to be the onus is on him to improve the performances and the consistency, as we said earlier. Uh, and the players that he's got. Like if someone like William Saliba comes back in, if we've got limited resources, we've got two central defenders. Uh, you know, Mavropanos made his debut for Greece and it seems to be having a pretty decent season at Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. And we've invested £28 million pounds, uh, on William Saliba. So it's Arteta's job to get the most out of those players and use what he's got available to him. So I think, you know, in terms of expectations... In the transfer market, are we going to go and spend 50 million on this player and 40 million on that player? No, I don't think we are. I think we can do a few deals um, if we sell well. And then after that, it is entirely on the coach to improve the team with his work on the training ground um, because that's that's the bottom line for his job. Yeah. The reason I love this question is because I think it's something we all do. We make a list of stuff Arsenal need to fix in the summer. You know, it's 10 things long and we think, well, I imagine they'll do that. And, and mm. it doesn't work like that. You know, they do five or they do four. or You know, you, you, you very rarely tick every box in a chance window unless you've got 200 million quid swilling around and that's the opposite of what we've got. But I think you make a really good point about if there is mobility in the market, if there is money being spent. Arsenal have a lot of players they could sell, potentially. Um, you know, you mentioned the ones out on loan, Mavropanos, Willock, um, Reese Nelson might as well be, Eddie Nketiah, mm. um, even a couple of first team players, you know, Lacazette, uh, Hector Bellerin. I-, I wonder if we might be looking at a situation where no one's really prepared to inject any money. Arsenal don't have reserves of cash to go and spend money, but what we what we get in, we can use. Mm. Um, I wonder if that might be where we end up. But um, yeah, I, I do think it's important to, when we talk about what the next step is for the team and what is the realistic, I mean, 
there was a question about this actually about yeah uh digital trivsell on twitter said is it realistic for us to target top four next season ober and lacquer are past their peak our midfield lacks quality and depth and we've relied heavily on an old louise in defense a lot of squad building to do with limited funds um is it realistic to target top four it's very hard to say because you don't know what's going to happen with all the other teams around you but i think we do have to be realistic about how far we have to climb Mm. um and what the plausible next sort of rung on the ladder is and i think as you said earlier maybe that is just trying to target the top six i think it kind of has to be at this point yeah i mean the the Look, there's a financial downside and a prestige downside to not being in Europe, but that can be potentially offset by the ability to, you know, if you're playing once a week as opposed to twice a week, you know, you do have more That's time. Help. You know, that, That's that help. well, that has to help. I mean, this is this is you know, we're in a scenario, regardless of what we can do in the summer financially, we're in a scenario where next season Arteta's coaching has to be a big part of our improvement. And if it's not, and if we don't, then nobody could say he hasn't been given a fair shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Particularly if he has that, you know, Monday to Friday, work, work, work on the training ground you know, hone everything and you're going into games fresher than, you know, at least six of the opponents that you're going to face in the Premier League because they're going to be involved in European competition. Maybe seven, who knows, depending on who wins competitions. And look, we could be in there, but, you know, let's see. Um, Here's a question uh, from the Discord from Wenger's Parker, who says, regarding Edu, isn't it reasonable to uh, reasonable to expect that he comes up with a hidden gem or two from South American leagues this summer? Seems like a very underrepresented region uh, in European football relative to its population and history of producing the kind of hard-running, combative players it seems we could uh, use particularly in midfield. So, you know, after the, 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 the issues with Brexit and, and European players and all that kind of stuff, there were suggestions that South America's market would be key and that as Arsenal dismantled their scouting network across Europe and let go of, you know, boots on the ground scouts, if you like, in Europe, they retained some of that in South America. So is that mm-hmm. is it reasonable to to think Edu might be able to to find a player or two from South America? I think it's definitely somewhere Arsenal should be looking at because they do have a bit of competitive edge there in terms of Edu's connections. Uh, you know, they're certainly connected with some agents that have mm. reach and that's part of the world as well. They did retain scouts, you're right, and the work permit situation has changed pretty dramatically. I think it's for Brazilian, Argentinian and Chilean players. Um, I suppose what I don't know for sure is what is the strength of the leagues out there, mm. but we know that they generate a lot of really exciting young talent. So whether or not it would be someone who's ready to come in and, you know, play immediately, I don't know. But I think Arsenal should definitely be looking at it because, you know, as much as the financial situation is dire for Arsenal and clubs in the Premier League, you can bet clubs in other countries are feeling that too. And Mm. as cruel as it may sound, maybe Arsenal have the ability to take advantage of that. I mean, certainly... 
if KSE were to decide that they wanted to, mm. they still could, you know, absolutely yeah. take advantage of that situation. So, um, yeah, I, I think that is a reasonable expectation that Arsenal should be looking at that part of the world. And to be fair, you know, they appear to have done that in the case of Pablo Marie. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I think what what I would say to that just uh, very quickly is that if we are looking to to change the age profile of some of the signings that we're making or have made, yeah. you know, bringing in young talent from South America might be a pretty cost-effective way of boosting the squad, given mm-hmm. that European prices are going to remain... I'm not sure if high is the right word, but, you know, there hasn't... I don't get the sense that there's been a huge drop-off in in prices. And maybe what we can get for our money, our money might go further in, in South America, if you like. That's I hope so, I mean. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think... And the other thing I think is that the loan market's going to be really interesting again this summer. I think there's going to be... You know, Arsenal have taken players like Ceballos and Odegaard on loan. I think with clubs managing their wage bills a little bit more carefully and with less transfer fees swelling around, I think there are going to be mm. loans. And I think probably a club in our position need to be alert and across that. And, you know, if there are players leaving the likes of Madrid or Barcelona, we probably need to look at what we can do. It's, I know it's a short, quick fix, but um, I think it will be yeah. a, a big factor. So, yeah. Um, oh, I had this question. Um, <laughs> it seems like a strange question for a guy who's just signed a new contract, but I thought it was interesting. Harper Pestinger says, what does Rob Holding's future look like? I don't think he should or will ever be a cool first-teamer, so is selling him now the best option? <laughs> uh, I think Chambers has overtaken him in terms of value to us. Well, I mean, Chambers hasn't played at centre-half. You know, the last time Chambers played at centre-half was, I think, Arteta's second game in charge when we we played Chelsea, and he picked up the injury. Wouldn't be opposed to seeing it, I have to say. Yeah, look, I've said this before. I think Rob Holding is, you know, a decent backup to uh, a right-sided centre-half. I don't think he should be starting. I certainly wouldn't be starting him in games against Liverpool and Manchester City. I think that right-sided centre-half position is one which is going to require some thinking for next season. You know, I already talked about Mavropanos and talked about Saliba. The David Luiz situation is is one that they're going to have to address. Um, You know, as... as, uh, Go on. I was just going to say, it's got to be Saliba. It's got to be. Yeah. We've got to get Saliba in this squad playing games. Uh, You know... In terms of progressing the ball, in terms of his ability to pass, to carry it, we we need we need him, and it mm. would be ludicrous not to use him at this point. I, I, it just absolutely has he has to be part of the plan for next season. He has to be right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, it's a, it's a huge investment for a club like Arsenal to make. Yeah. We sent him out on loan so he could play. Um. And I assume that the plan is, you know, we sent him out on loan to play so he develops and he can come back and be more ready for us because that's basically what Arteta said, you know, that he felt he wasn't ready. Um, and again, leaving price tag aside, I see I see some... Um, I don't think it's unreasonable 
to say that a 19-year-old central defender might need a bit more time to hone his, you know, certain aspects of his of game before you launch him into the Premier League, as much as we all want to see him and everything else. So I do see the logic in that. So, you know, he's gone to Nice, he's playing regularly, he's playing well. He has pretty much everything that you are looking for yeah. in a in a right-sided modern central defender. He's got the physicality, he's got the presence, He's got the passing ability. I know that's an aspect of his game, which uh, the distribution is is probably one of the things that they've sent him out to to work on. Um, but if you were like if you were putting a checklist together about what kind of player you want Arsenal to sign and play at centre half, young, time to develop. You know, he's tall, he's strong, he's quick. Uh, all of those things are in William Saliba, and mm-hmm. we have him, and he's our player. And we, as a club with limited money to spend, cannot, cannot afford to um, to not use that investment and mm. and use the money in in other positions. So, yeah, uh, so I, I I think that's right, and I, and I do understand the question why the question about Rob Holdings being asked. This wasn't a good day for Rob Holding. Um, I don't think yeah. it's been a good period for Rob Holding. Like I you know, I think he he in that spell where he played quite regularly, you think he played what maybe 15 or 16 games in a row, he played pretty much every minute of every game. Mm. I think he did pretty well for the most part. Um but then he had that little mistake against Aston Villa which wasn't entirely down to him, but it was it was a mistake. I think he had the mistake against Man City. You know, he's out jumped by Raheem Sterling. He's out jumped by Diogo Jota. You know, combined height of three foot six. It's not good for a central defender to be exposed like that. You know, particularly as I'm sure after the Man City game, they must have gone over the tapes. They must have done some work. They must have sat. You know, you like to think that when a player, look, players make mistakes, but. You know, the coaches and, and everything else must have gone through that with Rob Holding and said, look, you know, you were, you were done there. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah. And it happened yeah. again. So, you know, I think, he, I, think he's, I think he's a backup player. And to be honest, if Saliba does come back and if there is an intention to use him, then... Depending on what happens with David Luiz, depending on what happens with Mavropanos, holding is a player. It wouldn't surprise me hugely if he did get sold, because he is, you know, by his Englishness and the the contract uh, length that he has, potentially reasonably valuable for yeah. a team that could use a defender like Rob Holding. And there are plenty of teams, I think, in the Premier League that would view him as a as a good asset. Yeah, I mean, when he signed the contract, part of the justification that I think we made for it on the show was saying, well, it protects his value if we do decide to sell him. Um, and I wouldn't be adverse to that being put to the test. You know, I, I wouldn't... I think he's a useful squad player, but I wouldn't shed any tears if he went and it meant we could get somebody better. Of course yeah. not. Yeah. 
Um, let's do one final one then, um, yeah. because time is ticking on and we need to get this up. Uh, from the Discord, Booten Schlenks says, what's going on with Bellerin? Hasn't played in a while. Does Arteta no longer trust him? Be interesting to see what happens in midweek, won't it? I mm. mean, I feel like we've been here before where he's not played a league game and we've all gasped and then he's he's played the Europa League game and suddenly it feels a bit more reasonable. Um, I think there is a bigger question around Bellerin's future. I, I do wonder if, you know, there is just kind of a natural parting of the ways, maybe, imminent. Um, something that's been in the water for a little bit of a while now and with Arsenal maybe needing money to, to mm. spend money could be a, an area where there might be a change. Um, but I think he's got, I think he'll probably play on Thursday. What, what do yeah, you I do too. I do too. You know, he's, uh, even if he has been in and out a bit in, in the, the league, he's been trusted in the Europa League. Um, I think he's been a, an ever present in, in the European fixtures. So, I I think he'll play. I think he'll play on on Thursday. Um, you know, I, Callum Chambers had a good game against West Ham. I'm not sure. Again, I, I don't want to go over the Liverpool game again, but I'm not sure he was the right selection at right back for the Liverpool game, despite it how was, well he played uh, against West Ham. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, mm. I know we talked about Leno playing the long passes to that flank and. Arteta was really keen for Chambers and Pepe to get close together and try and win those knockdowns. And obviously you can't do that with Bellerin or Cedric. And I mm. think that was, you know, seemingly part of his plan to win those balls high up the pitch and, and put mm. Liverpool's back line under pressure. Didn't pan out at all on the day. Um, I always found it interesting when Chambers was getting forward, Arteta would often hold him back. He he would say, you know, don't don't overlap. He would he would he would literally pull him back and say, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, I, I, I think it'll be Bellerin on Thursday, but mm. I still think Bellerin may well leave in the summer. Uh, let me just do one final one because you just reminded me of it. I meant to ask oh, it yeah. earlier on. Um, we can do it quite quickly from JHH, who's at Joe underscore Harstad, who says, does it worry you that Arteta has to constantly shout basic instructions from the sideline to so many of our players? Instructions such as check your shoulder, be prepared, pronto, get tight. Surely they should know this and be be switched on to it. I mean, that's interesting that you talk about him holding Chambers back because it did in some ways, I mean, I understand it because Mane bullied the shit out of Holding as well. There were a couple of things, a mm. um, couple of times when Holding got it really wrong in, in dealing with Mane. You know, if you get touch tight to him, he's just so strong and, uh, you know, yeah, mobile, he's just going to turn you and get away from you. So as a central defender, you need to, you know, the, the, the temptation is always to go tight and make it difficult. But if you go tight and you get turned, you're done, you're toast. And that happened to Holding a couple of times. So Chambers was kind of, you know, he was a little bit of backup to that. But what it did was um, it didn't give us any kind of um, shape on the right-hand side, which is where we were effective against West Ham. You know, you think of Odegaard uh, releasing uh, Chambers a number of times down that right-hand side. He just didn't have that pass to make. No, and we only really started doing that at 3-0 down, it's worth saying, against West Ham. I'm not yeah, sure that yeah. was the plan from the first minute. Um, the only thing I would say is when he's holding him back, 
I think sometimes that was because he didn't want him to go forward and overlap. I think other times that was because Chambers' instinct was to go early and Arteta wanted him to make a delayed run, um, which I, I think makes a degree of sense. The, mm. the, the, what, the broader point about instructions... I think it's a little bit overplayed. I think it's sort of a novelty of lockdown football that we get to hear it and mm. that we can interpret it and learn from it. And I think it's it's really interesting. Um, but, you know, I, mean, I think if there's 60,000 people in that ground, we're not talking about it. Like managers are probably, all managers are doing this to an extent, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, is when the 60,000 people in the ground, the players aren't going to hear it. Like you, no, you, no, you, you exactly. he could, he could deal with, you know, Pepe or Callum Chambers, the guys who are close to him. But once there are fans in the stadium, you know, you go five, six yards in field and those guys are not going to hear what the manager is saying over the crowd. So no, no, no. And, and I think, I think it is a coaching thing. It's like, clearly it's in Arteta's style of coaching. Um mm. But I think, yeah, it doesn't trouble me enormously. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when fans come back and, you know, uh, what that does, what Mm. that does to kind of the dynamics of it all. But um, at the moment, it's just sort of an interesting clue into what he actually wants from these players because when it doesn't work as it was the case against Liverpool, it can be very, very difficult to tell. Mm. Okay. Well, look, we've been going a, a while and we both have things to do on this bank holiday Monday and uh, hopefully everyone listening has had a nice weekend uh, aside from the football uh, and enjoys their bank holiday. If you've got one, we've got one here in Ireland and you've got one in the UK as well. So yeah. uh, as ever, thank you very much indeed for being here with us. We really appreciate all your support. Uh, we'll have more during the week, of course. We'll preview the Slavia Prague game on Patreon and uh, there'll be all the usual bits and pieces is on site as well so until the next one folks take it easy bye bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.